we uh, this whole month we've been talking about friendship and making friends as adults. And I don't know about you, as we've been in this and I've been working on some of these messages, it just transported me back to a simpler time of uh, watching movies that were a whole genre that I feel like we've just got away from. Now it's just all superhero movies and sequels, but that's a whole message for another time. Uh, but there's a whole genre of movies called the buddy movie, right? There was like the buddy cop movie. There were all these different movies that I don't know about you, but I was raised on. Like they shaped me. And some of you guys are looking at me like you've never seen a movie before. But like you know the buddy cop movie, like the buddy friend movie? Some of you guys don't. Let me give you some examples of the movies that shaped me. I think about friendship all the time through my lens of these movies. Toy Story. Right? You think about like Woody and Buzz, you've got Tom Hanks, and uh, oh, what's the other dude's name? Tim Allen, right? Yeah, sorry, next to Tom Hanks, everybody's a what's, what's his name, All right? But Tim Allen, you've got like Sheriff Woody and like the Space Cowboy, like and it's this amazing story. And like, I don't know, I'm so old that I saw the original Toy Story in theaters, and now my kids are like, I just want to watch Toy Story 3 and 4, and I'm like, Toy Story 3, that's like really dark, and like millennials, like we're like crying watching it, they don't get it, but it's a whole thing. Um, love these movies so much. And I feel like our theme song, we should have just sang it all corporately in worship, would have been, you've got a friend in me, right? In Randy Newman voice, it would be the only appropriate way to do that, right? Another movie, I got a little bit older, and this is like one of my favorite buddy cop movies ever, Rush Hour. Anybody remember this movie, right? This is 1998. There was a period of cinematic history where Jackie Chan owned Hollywood, and he was in everything. And, I, and Chris Tucker as well, like these guys were in everything. They actually made a trilogy out of this movie, but I stand behind, I'm like, original movie guy right here, like two cops from different parts of the world taking over this like worldwide crime syndicate. They're trying to take them down. And um, man, I just like think about this movie and I feel like I can taste like room temperature, Papa John's pizza and code red Mountain Dew from my youth of watching this movie and quoting every line. And I actually looked for a line that I could quote and I don't want to get canceled. So I'm not going to quote anything from this movie. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's a cinematic classic, but I think no other buddy movie shaped my generation more than this next film, uh, Dumb and Dumber. I don't know if you guys knew this, but this movie won the Oscar for most quoted by teenage boys in the early 2000s. And I mean, like so much of my life just comes back to a dumb and dumb. Samsonite, I was way off, or pets' heads are falling off. We say that one all the time around the office when things aren't going well. Uh, but like just incredible, incredible cinematic masterpieces, right? I mean, think about these movies and they shape me on how I think about friendship. But one of the interesting commonalities with all buddy movies, friendship movies, these three movies is that there's an arc of the friendship that they don't just like meet each other and stare at each other in the very first scene of the movie and say, did we just become best friends? Let's go do life together, right? There's conflict in all of these stories. There's challenge. There's character growth. Many times they don't begin as friends. They're enemies and then they become frenemies and then they become friends. You guys know what I'm talking about? They go on a journey. They're both coming. All these, all these characters are coming from very different worlds having to work together. There's actually in every one of these movies, there's a friend breakup scene to where things get so bad they don't see eye to eye that there's a dramatic moment when they're going their own direction and then they come back together saying we need each other to actually accomplish this task. Every one of these movies does this. And I think that there's like some ancient wisdom that Hollywood taps into uh, that actually is from our scriptures. Now, we understand that any friendship worth its salt is going to have conflict. There's going to be hard things and hard conversations that are going to help define any friendship worth anything. 
Uh, it's actually some of this ancient wisdom I think that uh, Hollywood picks up on. It's from Solomon. It's Proverbs. Uh, and uh, this sounds like fortune cookie wisdom. It's been so like all over the place. Or it sounds like a truism that you just find on something at Hobby Lobby. But this is actually from the Bible. And this is actually true. It says this uh, in twenty-seven seventeen Proverbs. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Like, I've just heard this so much in my life that it almost sounds dull. It almost sounds like, yeah, roll my eyes. That's what happens, right? We need to like push back on each other and then things get sharper. We get better. But it's interesting if you think about the original culture that this phrase of wisdom comes from, iron sharpening iron was something like a sword sharpening another sword, something that was tough and actually used for violence, violently clashing against another sword, (laughs) Iron sharpening iron is not just like sharpening your Cutco knives in the kitchen, right? It was this idea of conflict actually helping us become sharper, actually helping us growing to who we're created to be, growing into the function that you and I were created to function with. So today, as we land the Friendology series, we're going to talk about another element of Friendology, actually getting friendships right, that's not fun, it's not cute, um, it's accountability. Who's excited to talk about accountability? No one! <laughs> like, it's that kind of a thing, right? Because it like, feels so uncomfortable, and there's so many caricatures of what accountability actually is that just permeates our minds and maybe our past experiences, but definitely the media that we digest and watch as well. Like, I found this clip from the TV show, How I Met Your Mother, about accountability. See if you guys can resonate with this. Hey. Marshall, this is an intervention. It's about the hat. Hush. No. Okay, I have it under control, okay? I can take it off whenever I want. Dear Marshall, I do not like that stupid hat. I want to beat it with a bat. Or maybe stab it with a fork. It makes you look like such a dork. Spray tan? They reel you in with a coupon and then you just get hooked. Oh, we know, sweetie, we know. No, 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 this is a new sweater. What? The magic tricks. Specifically those involving fire. Magic tricks? Guys, interventions are supposed to help people, not attack every little thing you don't like about them. I'm sorry, but that really steams me. That really burns me up. I mean, I am filled with a white hot rage. Thank you! Oh, shoot. So when we think about accountability, there's lots of things that come to our mind. Maybe it is that dramatic intervention moment. Other times it can just be like somebody calling out or attacking something that we don't like about the other person, right? And usually there's an air of superiority that comes along with any accountability in a relationship to where they're calling you out from their ivory tower of having all their stuff together and you want to yell back at them like you've got some stuff to clean up on your side of the road too and it just becomes this standoff between the two people or you 
got somebody hounding somebody with texts, just making them feel guilty and shame or calling them out all the time. And dare I say that when you put the adjective Christian in front of accountability, things get even weirder and sometimes less and less helpful. Because we, we just say like, well, it's just, I'm just holding you accountable, brother. Like Christian accountability in this way. And it's almost like you can say anything rude, cutting, hurtful, dehumanizing. But at the end of that sentence, you say, in love. I'm just saying it in love that you're a monster who doesn't love their kids and like you're terrible with money. In love, buddy. Like it's that kind of a thing where I have uh, somebody in my life who oftentimes they'll, they'll like start a sentence with not to be ugly, but, and then they say the ugliest things about people. And I'm like, you just said the thing after the thing. And okay, don't really see it here. But what happens often when we talk about Christian accountability is that you get somebody called out for their stuff within it in and of itself is not wrong, but it leads to guilt. It leads to shame. Then it leads to that person just hiding and retreating back into themselves in an isolation to where they never actually grow. They never actually move forward and become who they were called and and they're called to be. So today I want to, I want to cast a different vision for a healthy accountability in our friendships. I would say like a healthy Christian accountability. And I want to cast a vision for this, that it's so much more than those things. It's more like, you know, getting an oil change in your vehicle every 3,000, 5,000, 6,000 miles or anything like that. Something that you do from time to time to help you from having a massive bill or a massive problem longer down the road. I want to paint a picture of what a healthy Christian accountability is that's like helping you see your blind spots that you can't see. Like to tell you earlier in the day after lunch that you have a big wad of cilantro in your teeth before you have four meetings in the afternoon and come home and your wife finally tells you you have a big wad of cilantro in your teeth. Is that just me? Is it just me? It happens sometimes. I just wish people would tell me. Check it out here, right? But we have blind spots and we need help to actually see them. So today we're going to talk about accountability, hopefully to like deconstruct some of the caricatures of accountability and see how we can actually place this in our life so that we can grow to be the people that we long to be, the people that God created us to be. And to do so, we're going to spend some time in the New Testament looking at an, a, a really astonishing account of conflict and accountability that I love is actually in our Bible. Like, you guys should read your Bible. There's some crazy stuff in here, and I, I still can't believe that they kept this in there. It's so stinking cool. Um, and it's going to be this account that we see that's so human that you're like, if they're editing the Bible to make it more clean and pristine, they would take that stuff out, but they didn't. Something I love about the Bible is that it's not just this holy, pristine thing that's all God and no human. I believe that our Bibles are very much like our Jesus, that our Bibles, like Jesus, are fully man and fully divine, both human and divine, both inspired and very messy, all at the same time. And that helps me trust the Bible. I love it so much, but I'm getting on a tangent here. Let's go back to the story that we're going to look at this morning. And to set the stage, it's in our New Testament. And to do this, we need to talk about what Jesus was up to in the first century. Jesus comes onto the scene from a no-name family, from a scandal-ridden past, and he comes into adulthood, and he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. The rule, the reign, the order of God, the way of living life in rhythm with God, it's now at hand. It's available for all 
all kinds of people. And so he started to teach about this kingdom to explain what it was like. He started to exemplify this kingdom by the way that he forgave and that he showed mercy and compassion and spoke about justice and the way he included outsiders who were told that they didn't belong. And ultimately it got him killed. (laughs) And he went to the the cross in a sacrificial act of love that was like a stamp at the end of his kingdom message saying that this is what life is truly all about. And then three days later, God the Father vindicated him and raised him from the dead at the very first Easter saying that there is a life that even death and sin could not extinguish. And it's in Jesus. And then for 40 days, he walked with his disciples and appeared to his disciples and he was prepping them. He's like, hey, this whole kingdom of God thing, you're next. You're gonna lead this thing into the future. I want you to teach everybody what I obeyed you to do. I want you to baptize people, inviting them into this new family of the kingdom of God. And you're gonna lead this thing and take it everywhere. And then we're entered into this period of history called the early church where Jesus' disciples are trying to lead this Jesus movement led by the Spirit of God and not the presence of Jesus. And it's beautiful, you guys, but it's messy. And there's a lot of conflict that's going on in the first century as they're picking up the pieces, trying to figure out how to be Jesus' people without Jesus being right there with them. And there's an ethnic conflict that's in the background of your entire New Testament, and it's kind of hard for us to understand, but I want to do my best to try to set the stage for us, because Jesus was Jewish, and all of Jesus' disciples were Jewish, but there seems to be this thing going on in the first century to where God is moving and speaking to and inviting people that aren't Jewish to come be a part of his family. And it gets messy because Jewish people were people of the covenant. They followed the Old Testament Torah. They were people of the law, not to earn God's love, but to show this marker that they're part of God's family. And then there's Gentiles, everybody else. I would say primarily that's us this morning. People that had no background of following God through the Hebrew scriptures, but but God speaks to us and he invites us to follow him and we find forgiveness and purpose in him. And we want to join the party too. And there's conflict with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians because some groups of Jewish Christians say that, well, to become a Christian at all, you need to first become Jewish. You need to take the signs of the covenant, follow all of our laws to show that you're part a Jewish, and then you become Christian. And other groups were like, no. <laughs> like, if they're, where they are as Gentiles, it doesn't matter what their ethnic background, it doesn't matter anything. If they're called to follow Jesus and they trust Jesus as Lord, they're justified, they're part of God's family right where they were. And we meet two different people in our New Testament um, that were actually living in this tension as they led the early Jesus movement. One was a guy by the name of Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, whose primary mission was to invite the Jewish people to trust Jesus as their Messiah. And then there's a guy named Paul, who actually is responsible for writing about two-thirds of our New Testament, whose his primary mission was to invite the everybody else into the party, into the family, to invite the Gentiles into the family. But there's an inherent tension between these two groups, and they actually come to a head in the letter that Paul writes to the church in Galatia called Galatians. And in chapter two, we're about to see some drama take place in our Bibles. And again, I can't believe this is like included in our Bible. I love it. It's messy. It's human. It's inspired. It's all those things. Am I a little excited? A little excited. (laughs) 
Let's pick up Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Paul's writing this. He says, when Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's pretty strong language there. He stood condemned. He was really wrong, right? But I, I love that, you know, Paul is going to go to his friend Peter and he's actually going to not talk behind his back. He's not writing about this later like Peter was way wrong and I never told him about it. No, he actually stabs him in the front, which true friends do, right? He actually talks to him and he stands face to face with Peter and he's going to tell Peter that you're doing something wrong. And this is not small potato stuff. I need to tell you to hold you accountable to what you and I have agreed to is the most important. I love the realness in this, but I also love like face to face. Like, man, we lose this so much with our screens, don't we? We, we lose the humanity in our conflicts because we're hiding behind our smartphones. We're hiding behind our laptops and iPads all the time. Uh, but Paul says there was something important I had to do and it had to be face to face as he confronted Peter. We're told this very next, why? Why he confronted him. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. So we're told that like Peter used to like sit down at a table and share a meal with the others, the people that weren't Jewish people. He was doing that, but it was before the people that came from James came to town. You see that tension, the conflict between the groups of people where they say you have to become Jewish first and then you can become a Christian and those who say you can become a Christian as a Gentile? Well, the people that came from James were the group of people saying that you needed to become Jewish first. And these were people that were very uh, conservative with their theology, very strenuous with like guardrails around their faith so much that they were very isolationist in tone. And we see here that, that, that Peter was eating with everybody, but when people came from James, he changed his tune. We're told this next. But when they, the people that came from James, the conservative isolationist type arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. I picture Homer Simpson going into the bushes, right? He, they came from James. He used to eat with Gentiles. They arrived. He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision party. Now, if you're inviting people to a party, do not call it the circumcision party. Bad invite, not going to get a good crowd, does not sound like very much fun. Sounds memorable, not very much fun, right? But Paul is calling the circumcision party. He's equating them with the certain men that came from James. Now, um, we need to understand a couple things here. There's this huge backdrop of a first century Judaism or Jewish thought called table fellowship. And this is what Peter is going back and forth with in this moment. See, in the first century, um, it was believed, this was not written in the Torah, this is not biblical law, but it was Jewish custom, that who you ate with, you approved of everything about them. I'm so glad this is not our custom day, because none of you guys would ever eat with me. But who you ate with, you approved them, and you were connected with. And there were a certain group of Jews, the people that came from James, who believed that the way that they were called to follow God as a Jew was to separate and show a different way than what the Gentiles were walking in this moment. And so there's this conflict between the two groups. Now, uh, the circumcision part of that whole deal there, just to uh, cut it out, all the jokes, um, sorry, um, 
But this was the idea that people, that you had to become Jewish, you had to have a mark of the covenant, which was circumcision, to become a Christian. You can imagine that the line of middle-aged men at the New Believers class was very short. Not a lot of people signing up for that. But we see this tension here, and we see how Paul is calling Peter out because he says, hey, before those people showed up, you sat with everybody. You understood that Jesus is making this big, beautiful, diverse, blended family of all nations and everyone's invited to trust him and that everybody is justified not by their behavior or their ethnicity, but because of their trust in Jesus. He says, before those people from James came, you were all in, but then they show up and you start to shrink back. Your racism is showing, Peter. You want to like act differently in front of a certain old boys club. And you want to go back to this more restrictive way of thinking. And this causes so much tension because Peter is not following the whole table fellowship thing when certain people are around. And he's following the table fellowship thing when the conservative people from James are in town. And then Paul mentions no words and he says this. The other Jews joined him, Peter, in his hypocrisy so that, uh, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. I imagine Barnabas reads this letter years later. He's like, ah, oh, I got included in this. How did I even get included in this, right? But you see, like, he's being called out for his hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy to a first century Jewish mind is a little different than what we think of today. Uh, hypocrisy, to be a hypocrite, is the hypocritos. And to be a hypocrite was to be an actor, someone who wore a mask to hide what they truly looked like and what they truly believed. It was hypocritical for Peter to believe something differently than how he was acting. It would be hypocrisy if I was hanging out with a bunch of Rolling Stones fans who were talking about how the Rolling Stones were better than the Beatles. And I'm like, yeah, I totally agree. Because I do not agree the Beatles are so much better than the Rolling Stones. I have 15 minutes of preparation to talk to you about that, but we'll do that another time. But we see that Peter was being a hypocrite by acting inclusive in one group of people and then being exclusive and turning his back on the Gentiles when another group came along. And this is a big problem because we're told here that other Jews even joined Peter in his exclusive activity. And, and Paul is calling out Peter for his hypocrisy, for not really doing what he believed, because he knew that earlier in Peter's life, just a few years earlier, Peter had an incredible supernatural experience in the presence of God where God revealed to him that there are no groups of people that are outside of the, the limits of God's love. There's no group of people on the outside looking in that are not good enough or impure or unclean for God to come and reach and rescue. I mean, spend some time this week, make a note of this, check out Acts chapter 10. Acts is the chronicling of the whole early church movement. And Peter has this dream where God uses this like cloak, this sheet, and he's like laying out all these animals that good Jewish boys and girls weren't supposed to eat. But God keeps telling Peter over and over again, take and eat, take and eat. And he wakes up and someone comes to Peter's house and says, hey, you need to go to this Roman centurion by the name of um, Cornelius's home and you need to eat with him. That'd be a crazy message, right, after that dream? So Peter does, and then he goes to Cornelius' home, and he gives this little speech. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 10. But go check out the whole story later this week. But here's what it says. Peter said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. That's that table fellowship thing. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. 
See, Peter knows better. Peter at one point had this, this um, enlightened moment where he knew that God was calling all different kinds of people to come worship him and make him Lord of their life. And there should be no ethnic or racial barriers between people. But the good boys club, people from James come to town and he's telling a different story. And that's why Paul calls out his hypocrisy. Paul continues on in this accountability moment, and he says this back in Galatians, uh, verse 13 of chapter 2, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Like, this is a big deal to Paul. This is not like a small potatoes, you take, you know, you have your interpretation, I have my interpretation thing. Paul was saying, like, this is counterintuitive. This is anti the message of Jesus, that said that he's coming for anybody and everyone, and especially those who you think are on the outside, he's pulling them into the fold of the family. He's building a big, beautiful, diverse, blended family of Jew and Gentile and everybody else to come trust him and follow him. He says this, he says that we need to swing the gates open of our church in this movement of God for all types of people to come trust and be transformed by Jesus. This is the truth of the gospel that you are messing here. And then he finishes this. He says this, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul's like, I see you eating with Gentiles and doing that whole thing in front of certain groups. And then when you back off, like you're holding everybody to customs that you don't even hold yourself. You're being a hypocrite. You know better. The mission is at stake. I'm going to call you to the carpet because I love you and I know that your allegiance is to Jesus and I want to help you become all that you were created to be. Now, we don't know how Peter responded. I imagine Peter responded with this. Okay, a little bit like awkward, you're right, I'm going to change. Like it's that kind of thing. We don't have that in the text. But we do know that from here, Paul and Peter stayed on the same team. They reasoned together and they moved the Jesus mission in the New Testament, this kingdom family forward together. I think the question I want us to like wrestle with for just a few moments is this. What if Paul would have just not said anything? What was at stake if Paul let Peter take it off course and bring more division between Jew and Gentile and just kept going in that way? Is it possible that the message of Jesus might not have ever even reached our continent, been passed down from generation as it spread across the states to where we're hearing it today? Because there was possibly a division that was so strong that the message couldn't get out at full strength. I, I think that's possible. I think there's a lot at stake when we keep our mouth shut and we don't say the hard thing and love to those that we love. And Paul knew that. And that's why Paul had to confront him to his face because he knew Peter knew better. And he knew that there was so much at stake. So we've talked a lot about like what unhealthy or a caricature of accountability actually looks like. Um, I, I've learned a lot this last week on a couple things about what accountability should look like and healthy accountability actually looks like. I want to share with you guys. Um, the first is this, that accountability is about inviting. It's about invitation, not 
opposition or opposing or attacking somebody else. It's not storming in to oppose them or attack them or tell them, you shouldn't wear those pants. It's nothing like that. It's us together having a spirit of invitation to others that they can speak into us to help us become who God made us to be. Like there is a season of life when you're a teenager, or at least I was a teenager, when my parents were trying to impose their will on me and they would just tell me, this is what you're going to do. And my punk rock sensibilities were just coming out and I wanted to fight that whole thing, just me, or is that somebody else's teenage life as well? Okay. But the reality was that they were imposing their will on me, but that's actually what we're talking about here is a, a more evolved understanding of accountability where we're actually inviting uh, uh, accountability into our life so that we can grow into who we were called to be. It's being invited uh, by a trusted friend running in the same direction to be the real you and to become who you want to be. You know, one of, the, one of the main values of our country, United States of America, is independence. And we celebrate independence so, so much. Uh, but there's, there's some, place that, some places that we need to go as people where independence for us relationally doesn't get the job done. And the scriptures invite us to an interdependence with other people so that we can belong to each other where we're better together and we can grow in to who God is calling us to be. The scriptures speak about this. Uh, Paul writes to a church in Ephesus, a lot of practical stuff at the end of this letter, and he says this about interdependence. He talks about submission. Ephesians chapter five, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And some of us have heard this verse used and abused to push us down. And it's like got so much damage to it. And we bristle up against this idea where we're like, this has to be one of those things in the Bible we don't take literally, right? This has got to be one of those deals. But what Paul is inviting us into and what he spells out the remainder of this chapter is this beautiful invitation to mutual submission. It's two people with the same rules that are actually bending towards each other, submitting to one another, considering the other more than themselves. And it's actually something that helps us grow into who we need to be. It's an inter interdependence model. And I think this is so powerful. I mean, I, this is something that we practice here actually at Bridgeway. We don't talk about it all the time, um, but our governance as a church is not to where like Joel is like king on purpose. And some of, some of the people that I work with are laughing, thinking about that. Uh, but it's not like that, but we actually have a board of elders of men and women who actually have the authority to fire me that actually have the authority to call me out on the carpet. And this is a good thing. They have the authority to tell me no. They have the authority to tell me not yet. They have authority to ask about things in my life and challenge me in leadership things, but also personal things. And I welcome that. I welcome that because I know that I will be better and our church will be healthier if I'm not set up as a king, but I'm just a servant who has the role of lead pastor. And this is something that we can all grow in because accountability is about invitation, not opposing the other person, but having a spirit of inviting submission and inviting somebody to speak into your life. The next thing I learned was that accountability is about hard words, but not harsh words. Accountability is not about like letting the thing pass and never saying the hard thing, but it's about speaking in a way that's motivated by love and commitment and compassion. It's not about harshness. I mean, sometimes we, we have to say the hard thing, but I had somebody tell me long ago, I think this is so true, that if you say the right thing the wrong way, it always ends up being the wrong thing. 
If you say the right thing in the wrong way, it ends up being the wrong thing. Paul again writes to this church in Ephesus and he says this in chapter four, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Now we need to grow. There's like this preposition here uh, that we need to grow to become more mature and to grow up. And we do that by speaking the truth in love towards other people, to be motivated by love and the betterment of another person, that we say the hard thing. That's how we grow. We say the last 10%. We say what's really on our mind because we want that person to be the best version of themselves. But there's a huge difference between hard words and harsh words. And I found this, uh, I've been saying this for years, and I did not come up with it, so please don't attribute this to me, but I don't know who to attribute it to. But I think this is so true that our words can be a scalpel or a hatchet. Both cut, but only one cuts to heal. You think about that. Our words can be a scalpel to cut out infection, to cut out brokenness so that somebody can actually be restored or they can be a hatchet. They can get in there and just cut someone up, destroy them from the inside out. Now, both of those tools, they cut, but one cuts to heal, a scalpel. The other cuts to just harm and break somebody up. And speaking the truth in love is not just saying in love at the end of that mean thing, but it's the heart behind it to help somebody grow, to help somebody see who they were called to be and help them take the next step. And the last thing about accountability, this is true accountability. Accountability is about growth, not discipline. It's not about smacking somebody on the hand. It's not about cutting somebody down to punish them so they learn a lesson. No, accountability is us saying that we want to grow and this is the way that God calls us to grow from time to time. And we we know this beyond theology and the Bible. uh, It's interesting that neuroscience and brain scans are showing us now how we actually grow through diverse friendships and we don't grow as much through our echo chambers. You can scan our brain and you see all these neuro pathways that are like highways and byways in our brain. But they've discovered that people that don't ever have somebody who calls them out, who actually encourages them to think differently. And it's all people that are in our echo chamber saying the things that we already believe where we can go, "Mm mm-hmm, I agree with that. We actually get simpler, or in brain terms, scientifically, we get dumber when we don't have those people speaking into us. Our minds begin to look more just like county road grids and not instead of a metropolitan highway system with off-ramps and on-ramps and exits, because we need to grow through challenging friendships and accountability. And this is actually like peppered into the very beginning of our scriptures at the very beginning of the story in the, in the creation poem in Genesis chapter two, we're told this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Speaking about two characters, the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve, but it's an interesting thing because that phrase helper fit, it's just been a caricature so much as I've grown up. And it's like, well, it's almost like this joke of like, well, the man really needed a woman to clean up after him and make him lunch and tell him where his keys were and to tell him how awesome he is. Like a man like needs a helper like that. And that's what God did in this moment. And man, it could not be farther from the truth. A little digging into the original language sees that that phrase helper fit is a powerful, palpable, strong word and title. 
It's actually two Hebrew words, Eitzer Konegdo. Eitzer Konegdo. And the word Eitzer is the word where we get helper. And we think of helper as this like meek little thing coming and helping out her man. But actually everywhere else in the Bible almost, every time you see the word Eitzer, it's used to describe God as a warrior, someone swooping in to save the day, to stand in front of opposition for a loved one. It's a very strong word used for God in our Bible. And then the word used for fit or suitable in other translations is the Hebrew word konegdo, which means opposed or against. An or konegdo, a helper fit, is the help that opposes. It's actually someone who comes from a different perspective out of love, and they help you by telling you that you're wrong. <laughs> they help you by pointing out your blind spot. They help you by showing a different way. They stand opposed to you in a way to assist you to become all that you were created to be. That's what a helper fit is. It's an or konegdo, the help that opposes you guys, the best marriages, the best friendships have that Eitzer Konegdo reality to where they help you grow by calling you to the carpet, by opposing you, by telling you you shouldn't be wearing that, or they're telling you that maybe you should think differently about that. That actually helps you grow into who God created you to be. Accountability is not about discipline, but it's an opportunity to grow, and we need each other to grow. So I want to ask you, um, as we bring this like, to our lives and we think about our current next steps in our friendships, I want to ask you a couple questions. I want us to live in these questions and wrestle with these questions and consider where we're currently at, how we would answer these questions as we consider our next steps. The first question is this, who do you want to become? When you think about where you are and who you are right now, who do you want to become? Because there's a distance between who you are and who you want to become and Ask yourself, like, how are you reaching for that? When it comes to, like, your spirituality, like, are you, are you trying to do it all on your own? Are you trying to, like, follow a YouTube plan or follow some kind of app to change? Like, is that really what it is? Or maybe it's the false dichotomy inside of our Christian circles of it's just me and God. It's just me and God. It's just this vertical relationship. I'm going to like just separate myself and be with God and read and pray and do the devotionals. And this is how I'm going to change. Is it possible that the distance between who you are and what you want to become is actually in a friendship? It's actually in an Eitzer Konegdo. It's in some help that can call you to the carpet and encourage you to become who you need to be. That it's not just you and God. It's not just you, but it's you with God, with other people that are actually there to support you and hold you accountable. Is it possible that that's your next step? There's another question. If you try to figure out who that person could be, like I think you should ask the question, who do you trust? If you're looking for accountability to become who you want to be, who do you actually trust? This is not just anybody. This is not like go on Facebook and be like, I need people to hold me accountable. Like if you want to hold me accountable on Monday, do the heart if you want to do it on Tuesday and you go down the line. Please do not do that. <laughs> this is not just anybody, but I think you need to ask the question, who do you trust? Because this is important. Who have you seen the fruit in their life? You've seen like the trail of their life and you're like, yeah, I want more of that. Who in your life has earned the right to speak truth and love to you? You've done enough life together. They know where you are and where you've been, that they've earned the right to speak into you and challenge you. And you know, you're going to receive it because you know that they love you. They're in it for the long haul. And maybe for you, you don't have an answer to this question. Like, who do you trust? Who would you invite and to do this? And um, man, that breaks my heart, but I don't want you to stay there. And this is a great opportunity for you to say like, yeah, I need to find somebody that I trust, that I want to follow them as they follow Jesus. 
so that I can be who I want to be. And maybe that could be in a table group. Maybe that could be a relationship with somebody you already have in a table group that you take it to the next level and you ask them to uh, help you in a very specific way. Maybe it's to put yourself out there and reach out to an old friend that you do trust that you haven't talked to in a long time, but you need to find an answer to that question. And when you do, here's the last thing I wanna ask you. So what's your plan to invite them to be your Aetzer Connecto, to be that help that opposes the people that love you so much that they'll stab you in the front so that you can heal, to shoot them a message, to invite them to hold you accountable. This takes you being authentic. This takes you being humble, saying that the path I'm on and how I'm doing it by myself, it's not working. But what's your plan? How do you actually do it? Hey, can we have a coffee? Hey, can we meet for lunch? Hey, can I talk to you about something? Hey, I really respect you and I'd really love to invite you to do this with me, for me. That's what it takes. I pray that some of us will have the courage to step out in that so we don't have to do it alone anymore. I love um, the, this quote from Rachel Held Evans, who's one of my favorite authors who's no longer with us. And um, she just wrote so beautifully about the power and the possibility of the church and authenticity and friendship. Uh, Rachel said this, imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create a sanctuary. I love the tensions that Rachel holds in this, right? Imagine a church where everyone is safe, everyone belongs, but no one's comfortable because in that belonging, Jesus is gonna shake things up in us. Imagine if a church became a place where we told one another the truth. Not we get in our cars after church and we talk about somebody, but we actually love each other and know each other and have earned the right to tell each other the truth. She says, maybe we'll just create a sanctuary. Maybe we'll create a safe haven from the madness of our world where we belong to Jesus, yes, but we belong to one another as well. What a vision. You guys, through the series we've talked about it's hard to make adult friendships, to make deep, robust, trust-filled friendships. It's gonna take us to make a commitment to a couple things. It's gonna take us to make a commitment to move from accessible, just through our phones, to being available to actually show up. It's gonna move us from wearing the church mask to truly being authentic and vulnerable with one another. And it's gonna take us to find those relationships where there's interdependence and we belong to one another and we don't bristle, but we welcome people calling us out in love because of what we want to become. And the choice is ours. If we'll just stay in the shallow end of the pool or we'll grow into these friendships that you and I were created for.